optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. What is VPN? Virtual Private Network. It's an app that you run on your computer or your mobile device. It secures your internet connection, hides your public IP address, and lets you bypass regional restrictions on content. And I actually asked my followers on Twitter, 1.5 or 1.6 million of you, for VPN recommendations, your favorites. Many wrote back that ExpressVPN was their favorite, including a number of people who've been on this podcast. So I gave it a shot. I've been using it for a few weeks now, and it is ridiculously fast uh, to the extent that I thought I didn't have it on. <laughs> to give you an idea, ExpressVPN is consistently rated the fastest VPN service on the market. It's incredibly easy to use, and it's one, two, three. Just download the app, tap one button, and you're connected to a secure VPN server. And I recommend checking out the website just to see the sign-up flow. They make it really smooth, very easy to sign up. And if you're an entrepreneur or do any web-based front-end development or design, rather, it's worth checking out for that alone. So ExpressVPN, what are we talking about here? ExpressVPN is great for when you need to get work done while you're on some sketchy Wi-Fi network, for instance. And I've had a number of hacker friends of mine show me how easy it is to snoop on public Wi-Fi just by downloading simple apps. You do not need a computer science background to do that, which scares the hell out of me. So if you don't want to be a victim of that, you can use ExpressVPN. Or if you're traveling and need to access something that's only available in another country, well, lickety-split, ExpressVPN has you covered. ExpressVPN is useful not only for entrepreneurs and remote workers and travelers like yours truly, but really for anyone who wants protection from being snooped on or having their personal data stolen. So I use it constantly when I'm in airports, coffee shops, and so on. Any public Wi-Fi, really. You just use the internet like you normally would, but with ExpressVPN encrypting all of your network traffic to safeguard your data. So check it out. Visit my special link at expressvpn.com slash Tim and you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Tim to claim your special deal. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. If you've ever sold anything online, or if you sell anything online, then you know what a pain in the ass the shipping process is. It's time-consuming, it's expensive, you're always copying and pasting orders from different sites, trying to figure out the best carrier, so on and so forth. It's such a hassle. And in a previous life, I shipped tens of thousands of units overseas, domestically, overnight, ground, every possible carrier. It drove me bonkers. ShipStation was created to make your life easier. I wish I had had it when I was in the biz, so to speak. It has the most five-star reviews of any shipping software. 4.9 out of 5 for Magento users, 4.8 out of 5 for Shopify users, 4.5 out of 5 for big commerce users. It goes on and on. Whether you're selling on eBay, Amazon, Shopify, or more than 100 other popular selling channels, ShipStation lets you access all of your orders from one simple dashboard. 
ShipStation works with all of the major shipping carriers locally and globally, including FedEx, UPS, and the major local couriers like USPS. ShipStation will recommend the best carrier for your needs so that you know that you're always getting the best deal. They even offer discounts on shipping costs that are available to say you as a one-person shop that would normally be thought of as reserved for large Fortune 500 companies. So there are a lot of benefits. No other shipping platform makes shipping faster, easier, and more affordable. And right now, Tim Ferriss Show listeners get to try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use promo code TIM. It's risk-free. You can start your free trial without even entering your credit card info. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in TIM. T-I-M. That's ShipStation.com. Enter promo code TIM. Check it out. ShipStation.com. Promo code TIM. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job every episode to deconstruct world-class performers of all different types, to tease out the principles habits, thinking, influences, and so on that help them to do what they do. And my guest today does not grant many interviews. And he came to me through avenues that I would not have expected. His name is Charles Koch. And I had several of my close friends, very, very accomplished in business, all very socially liberal, who had become friends with Charles and suggested that I have him on the podcast. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. But let's get into the bio. And this episode, no doubt, will excite the internet because there is a case of insanity going around. And I would encourage you to listen and to focus on what I hope to transmit, which is the importance of attacking the problems, not the people. We'll come back to that. Let's get to the bio. Charles Koch received a bachelor's degree in general engineering and two master's degrees in nuclear and chemical engineering from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. He is chairman of the board and CEO of Coke Industries, Inc., a position he has held since 1967. He is renowned for growing Coke Industries from a company worth $21 million in the early 1960s to one with revenues estimated as high as $110 billion that's annually, by Forbes. It's one of the largest privately held companies in the world, and by revenue, it's larger than both Boeing and Disney. Let that sink in. He has transformed the business into a diverse group of companies that employ nearly 130,000 people, making everything from Dixie cups to components in your cell phone. For 50 years, Charles has supported academic and public policy research with a special focus on developing voluntary market-based solutions to social problems. This interest led him to found or help build a number of organizations, including the Institute for Humane Studies, the Cato Institute, the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and the Bill of Rights Institute. Charles credits the success of Koch Industries to applying proven principles of social and scientific progress, which led to the development and implementation of his market-based management, MBM, business philosophy. He described MBM and its applications in two of his books, The Science of Success and Good Profit. Charles is now using those principles in philanthropy as the founder of Stand Together to tackle our country's biggest challenges. Stand Together is partnering with thousands of social entrepreneurs to help them improve their effectiveness and scale at tackling poverty, improving K-12 education, bringing justice to our criminal justice system, and more. I have more to say, so don't fast forward. But you can find out more about both Coke Industries and Stand Together at 
kochind.com, K-O-C-H-I-N-D.com, standtogether.org, which I highly encourage you to check out if you are a social entrepreneur or know social entrepreneurs in need of support and capital. On Twitter, at Coke Industries and at stand underscore together. It takes us a little while to get warmed up, as it often does in these podcast interviews. So give it you know, five, 10 minutes to get into flow. But we talk about a lot. We talk about books that have had the greatest influence on his thinking and actions. Thinkers. We talk about, for instance, the differences in acquisition strategy between Coke Industries and Berkshire Hathaway. We really go all over the place. And I also ask him some of the questions that were submitted by people following me on social media. And there are some real haymakers that I do read towards the latter portions of this conversation. So I do not simply serve up softballs. That's not the intention, and that's certainly not the way that I run this podcast in general. So this episode, why would I do this? Why would I deliberately polarize my audience because of identity politics and uh, people applying labels to themselves that cause so many problems. And I'm not referring to Charles, I'm referring to a lot of people among my listeners, no doubt. It's because I believe, much like Paul Graham does, one of the co-founders of Y Combinator, that the more labels you apply to yourself, the stupider you become. And the more prone you are to groupthink. And it's very, very dangerous. And in this episode, my role, I view, is not to get you to like or dislike Charles, but to pay attention to his thinking, which I do think is remarkable. And I will just mention a few things to calm down many of my friends out there who are (laughs) predominantly liberal. I did live in the Bay Area for 20 years after all to try to encourage them further to listen to this whole thing. Number one, I would say that Charles has been very active in collaborating with previous adversaries on criminal justice reform, uh, including CNN commentator Van Jones. They shared or found they shared common principles when it came to reforming this country's criminal justice system. And that is the topic that actually was brought up by a lot of uh, my friends who encouraged me to do this podcast. And in partnership with Van, Charles helped to build a nonpartisan policy coalition that passed historic criminal justice reform last year. On foreign policy, despite disagreements with George Soros on many other policy issues, as you can imagine, Charles discovered that he had common ground with him when it came to foreign policy. So they partnered with George's Open Society Foundations to launch the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which is a new think tank to promote ideas that move the U.S. foreign policy away from war and towards vigorous diplomacy in the pursuit of international peace. And it goes on and on in the sense that despite, and I'm quoting The Guardian here, despite being a conservative powerhouse that has at times outspent the Republican National Committee, The Koch Network is increasingly showing willingness to work with Democrats and investing in nonprofit groups to promote, quote, free and open societies, end quote. And then jumping forward in that piece, long seen as GOP kingmakers, David and Charles Koch have made waves by lambasting Trump and his administration. They refused to back Trump in 2016, vowed to hold him accountable to conservative priorities like free trade, free markets, and small government, and have been outspoken against the White House on immigration and infrastructure spending. 
What I found is that the people who love Charles Koch miss a lot. The ones who have the most intense views about Charles and Koch Industries. Likewise, the people who hate Charles or Koch Industries miss a lot. And my hope is uh, that I'm able to add some nuance and texture to this person who is often evaluated based on headlines. And also, again, to encourage everybody listening, much like I feel Charles does very effectively, to attack the problems, not the people. I think that's the only path forward, really, is to, instead of asking how to most effectively fight against someone to first ask yourself what you might have in common in terms of priorities so that you can align in some fashion. Without that, we're all doomed, I think, (laughs) in short or long order either way. That's a long intro, but I'm happy to provide this, and I'm sure that the feedback will be strong in all sorts of directions. Without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Charles Coke. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. Oh, I appreciate you taking the time. And I've had a, a number of my friends over the last, let's say, year, year and a half who have, have wanted me to interview you and who are fans of a lot of what you've done. Uh, the, the, the main subject that has come up a lot is criminal justice reform, which I'm sure we will get to. And there's a lot to cover. I thought we would start with dandelions. Can you tell me about your history with digging dandelions? Well, I was, uh, I really consider myself blessed because uh, I had the best of all possible worlds. Looking back, it didn't seem that way at the time. Uh, But we were wealthy and my father, he called himself a half-baked chemist. And he loved doing experiments. So we, we lived on a, an experimental farm. It wasn't a commercial farm, but it was a, a farm where my father could uh, experiment with various things. So we had, uh, we had cows, horses, uh, dogs, chickens, uh, and raised crops. And... Uh, and my father announced at an early age, he said, I, I don't want any of my sons to grow up to be country club bums. And I, I was a middle child. I had a, a brother who was two years older and two younger brothers who were twins uh, who were four and a half years younger than I was. And uh, so my father started this on my older brother, and he was uh, more of an artistic bent. So... Uh, the, this manual labor that involved um, helping out on this experimental farm didn't work as well for him. And so I bore the brunt of it. And you may ask, why Why did I bear it? Well, that was one reason. And as he put it, I asked him years later, I said, Pop, why were you so much tougher on me than my younger brothers? And he said, son, you plumb wore me out. And so, so I, I earned the, the right to be in more trouble, get knocked around more, and do more work. So I started, he started me out in all my spare time working. And uh, the first was digging dandelions. The reason I say digging, you can't just 
cut them off or, or pull them, you've got to get all the roots out or they just come back. So that was my job. And then I graduated into, into shoveling out stalls, feeding the animals, uh, milking cows, uh, digging post holes, fixing fence and all that stuff. And then uh, as I got older, I got jobs in other places. So it was, it was quite uh, an opportunity to learn the value of work and learn that uh, I better develop some skills that other people will value or I could end up doing this the rest of my life, which I didn't look forward to. He used to say that he said, I was a good kid in many ways, as long as the work didn't come too close. <laughs> and so I had, uh, I had what uh, the economists call a high time preference. That is, I was into instant gratification. How could I minimize the work? How could I do something that's fun? So that was my whole orientation. And, and then I was blessed that I thought the only thing I was good at was getting in trouble, and I was, I was pretty expert at that. And I found in the third grade that I, I had a gift in, in math. And I later learned when I studied, uh, studying psychology, I read Howard Gardner and his multiple intelligence theories. And boy, did that fit me, because the only thing I was good at was what he called uh, logical mathematical intelligence. And so I had a, a gift for math and abstract concepts. So basically my whole life has been to find opportunities that, uh, that use that, that I could create value with that, and then to partner with people who were good at all the other things that needed to be done that I wasn't good at. And for Dream Possible is because I've done that. Whenever I've tried to do things by myself or without that kind of, uh, of support, I've, I've basically failed. I want to ask a bit more about your dad, specifically about a, I believe you still have it, I would imagine so, a framed letter that you found in your father's safe deposit box after his death. Can you talk about the letter that is on your wall and why it's important to you? Yeah, he wrote that in, uh, in I think, January of, uh, of 1936. And I was, let's say I was born in November, so I was, let's say, three months old. And so he wrote it to my older brother and me. And in there he talked about adversity, provides the greatest lessons and is certainly the greatest character builder. And then his hope for us and whatever he had given us that we used it, we didn't misuse it or waste it, but used it so we could experience the glorious feeling of, of accomplishment. And so that's everything he did, whether I liked it at the time, was toward that end. And so he, uh, and I, th I think this is so important for anyone who's a parent, and certainly we've tried to do that, is you don't lecture your kids on anything that you don't live up to. And he exemplified uh, integrity, uh, humility, treating others with respect. And, and as he used to preach to me, son, learn everything you can. You never know 
when it will come in handy. And so those were all great lessons, and and there was no hypocrisy in there. I mean, that's the way he lived. When you ended up uh, after your education, so after MIT, uh, you were talked back to Wichita. And uh, my understanding is that uh, he had an equipment company that wasn't doing well and, and effectively said, you can run it any way you want. The, the one thing that you would need approval for is selling it. Was that the time that your dad fascinates me? Because I think you might have been, correct me again if I'm wrong, but about 26. Uh, I have a piece of advice that, uh, that he gave you. And it's, I hope your first deal is a loser. Otherwise, you'll think you're a lot smarter than you are. So it, it really seems that your dad was focused on preserving your sort of initiative and drive so that the, the, the wealth wouldn't become a curse. Are there other things that he did when you first joined the business to facilitate that? Could be before or after, but I'm, I'm wondering what that initial experience was like. Yeah, we had uh, uh, my father, the, the, the way he got me to come back, he had been after me. I was working for a consulting firm in in Boston and learning a lot. And I got to work in all different phases. This wasn't just a management consulting. I started in product development and then I did process development and then I worked in an innovation group and I kept uh, maneuvering. So I got to to try different things. I was looking for something that I could use what uh, few gifts I had and in a way that would be productive and that, and that I'd be passionate about. And, and by the way, I had, uh, the reason I was able to get into MIT and is I started my, my time preference changed rather than being instant gratification. I, uh, I started, uh, uh, I got a much lower time preference, and that is I, I became focused on the long term, on, on studying and developing these aptitudes and looking for uh, a calling that I could use to create value for others and that would make me successful and, and that I would be fulfilled by, so I would be passionate about it and and work. So I, uh, through all this, uh, I worked in in multiple departments at Arthur D. Little, and and I just uh, Charles, may I interrupt I you for just one second? I apologize. That could we talk about? I just want to pause on the switch that you made. So how did you? Because a lot of people never make the switch from instant gratification to this longer term focus. What catalyzed that for you? Well, I think it's it's that I said is my father always had me doing dirty jobs, and I was minimizing the my work effort I put into it. And at some point, I figure out this is a dead end. Mm. What am I doing? And and it, and maybe his lessons and his example seeped in, and so I started started reading. Probably as a, a junior in high school, started reading start with novels and then at MIT I, I got three degrees in engineering there but I was a lousy engineer but I, I was good at the concepts behind engineering but not on how to apply anything so I maximized the 
uh, taking the courses in theory. Mm-hmm. And so I took uh, uh, mathematics for nuclear engineers, all these abstractions, because that's what I was good at. And so, not that I've used a lot of that, but it really helped develop my aptitudes. And so then as I got to work some in business and business consulting, I found, wow, this came naturally because what I was good at in business were things like vision, philosophy, strategy, uh, logically analyzing problems, and looking at the other side, what could go wrong, rather than just go with whatever ideas we had, but to really experiment, test them, apply the scientific method to them, which I, part of which I learned at MIT, part of which I learned afterwards. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd love to, and we can, we can certainly bounce around. I mean, that's sort of the nature of a lot of these conversations. But if, if we could talk about books, because it, uh, it certainly seems like books have had a large influence in your life. And in, in your book, Good Profit, you wrote, I am a bona fide book person. My home contains more books than I'll ever have time to count. And the walls of my Wichita office are lined with them too. Uh, what are what are some of the books that have had the largest impact on your thinking? And um, two, I'd love for you to, in addition to anything else you might mention, uh, I'd love for you to describe what impact two books had that came up repeatedly in my reading, F.A. Harper's uh, Why Wages Rise, and I'm probably going to pronounce this name so you can correct me, but Ludwig von Mises or Ludwig von Mises, I'm not sure. L- Ludwig von Mises. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, the human action. Uh, well, I, yeah, I can talk about those, but the two, the two authors that have had the biggest influence on me are are Abraham Maslow and Frederick Hayek. And, and a, a lot of what we do is based on Maslow's ideas of, uh, of pos- he was one of the early positive psychologists rather than most of them in history, Freud and others had worked on the psychiatry of, of illness. And he took the other side, he said, what? can enable somebody to have a fulfilling, rewarding life. And what he said is, uh, what you can be, you must be. If you are determined to live your life without developing your potential, you may be successful in other ways, but you will be deeply unhappy for the rest of your life. He said, a bird has wings, a bird has, has to fly. What you can be, you must be. And so that's, and then he called that, that state of where you are fulfilling your nature, uh, self-actualization, that what you can be, you've, you're becoming, not that any of us are ever perfect in that because it's a continual learning experience and which requires ongoing effort. So that's what we've, we try to apply here at Coke Industries and that's what we're applying in our in our philanthropic efforts to enable everybody to have the opportunity to realize their potential. And then what Hayek said of, of all the, the insights that, that he's provided, one that's I quote in, the, in my book, Good Profit, that what he called perhaps the greatest discovery in the history of mankind is that people can 
uh, live and work together in, in peace and to their mutual advantage under generalized rules of, of just conduct. That is with generalized rules that enable people to succeed by assisting others rather than detailed rules that cause conflicts and, and people trying to undermine each other makes all the difference. And that was from his, his study of, of history, well, history, philosophy, economics, and so on. So you put those two together and it forms the core of my philosophy and what's enabled me to accomplish more than I ever was really capable of doing. You, uh, you, you and I in, in, uh, in previous chats, uh, have had Karl Popper pop up in conversation a number of times. Do you find yourself applying scientific principles or engineering principles uh, that you used in your education to business? Or how does Karl, how does Karl Popper fit into your thinking about business or or Uh, life? No, no, that's a great question. The, uh, at MIT, I, I became, fascinated with science and the scientific method. And then after I moved back to Wichita, I started studying. Uh, one of the early things I studied was the, the philosophy of science and the scientific method. And, and particularly, and as one, one particular essay of Karl Popper's called Science is Falsification, in which he says that the true scientific method is develop a, a testable proposition, not a prop proposition that that is untestable, but one that's testable. And then your obligation is to not to go find evidence that will support it, but go out and seek criticisms of it, find what's wrong with it. And that's what we do on, on everything. Like we have a project or an acquisition. Okay, the first thing to do is find what could go wrong. And any idea I have, I, let's say I have an idea for a new strategy or a new business. And so the first thing I do is think through, okay, what, what are the key drivers of success here? What needs to happen? And let's say there are five different uh, main drivers. Then I, I go find the, the people who can best show what's wrong or what could go wrong in each of those drivers. And we get together and I go through my idea and, and each one is expected to come up with ways that could go wrong. And every time we go through that, we come up with a better answer than I had developed. And so that's critical. The other philosopher of science that I've particularly drawn on is Polanyi, who wrote, uh, whose essay, well, a couple of things. His essay on uh, Republic of Science, where uh, the, the, the reason a scientific community has been so productive and innovative is that no one's in charge. It's by consensus, debate, and knowledge sharing. And the innovations come about by uh, taking different ideas and combining them in new and novel ways. Uh, and so that's what, that's another thing that we, or approach that we use in management. Every, 
every one of our businesses we look at as a laboratory for for innovation and finding new and better ways to to do things and new and better opportunities charles could you could you speak to perhaps an example of how you have uh, applied the republic of science or the concepts therein and for for people who want to look him up first name michael uh, i believe uh, polanyi we'll put this in the show notes as well for folks but uh, in terms of information exchange recombining in novel ways could, could you give a an example a concrete example of how that has been applied right well the the first thing we do is is we emphasize knowledge sharing uh, many companies particularly large companies operate in silos and and you have an incentive where gosh you you know you have an idea or you learn something and you don't want to share it because you may not get credit for it we consider that the kiss of death so so we expect everybody to share and we build mechanisms and incentives in the company to to encourage this internal knowledge sharing and then we expect every every discipline and every business to build knowledge networks around the world and it may not be uh, largely isn't something that's uh, in in your field or just with the competitors but something that's going on elsewhere and so we do that i mean for example on on how to keep uh compressors from breaking down and shutting down your whole operation so uh, we one group or we build a group to do data analytics to to take measurements and determine what it was near breaking down so we could repair it before it shut the whole plant down and then everybody shared this knowledge and learned from each other. And this, this is our whole philosophy of, of mutual benefit. That is, the way to get knowledge sharing is show when you help somebody else, if it's the right person or group, then they will reciprocate. And so we have this culture now of knowledge sharing, what we call a republic, create the republic of science. And that's, that's true for everything, for not just uh, compressors, but everything. And then we have innovation conferences that get draw from different disciplines and different of our businesses. They get together and throw out ideas they have. And then they, then they get to know each other. So they don't just share when we set up a structure to do it, but would they have what we call a spontaneous order where people just naturally know gosh i'm working on this problem who might help me in the company and then who can help me elsewhere in the world who's working on something similar i mean it's like uh, what newton said if i see further it's because i'm standing on the shoulders of giants and but they don't need to be giants anybody who who's working on a similar problem may have an idea that can help you and collectively, we're all smarter than we are, any of us are individually. And uh, you know, to that point, I, I'd say that uh, it's, it seems like you need to create systems and incentives to reward the right type of, of sharing. And uh, in, 
I keep mentioning Good Profit. You've written other books, but uh, Good Profit, um, I've, I've found very interesting for a, a number of different reasons. I mean, you have, it, it's uh, certainly uh, completely politically agnostic. I mean, you have John Mackey, co-founder of Whole Foods, who's praised it. You've got uh, General Richard B. Myers, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and others who've who've talked about it. And it's it strikes me that sort of clarity of thought and systems uh, are, are a recurring theme. So I'd like to talk about a few things that makes what you guys do uh, different, perhaps, uh, from from others. Um, and one, one that stuck out to me, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, was, uh, this is on Coke After Fred um, in chapter two. The It was on the difference between acquisition strategies of uh Coke and Berkshire Hathaway. And I, be, I believe I'm getting this right, but it says Berkshire Hathaway buys companies when their competitive position is attractive. And if their management is good, he assures them that he won't intervene except to decide how to invest the cash flow. Then he largely leaves them alone to operate as they had before the acquisition. Coke's strategy has been to make acquisitions when we can uh, create additional value by applying our capabilities. Um, I was wondering if there are any other uh, differences or contrasts between uh, Berkshire Hathaway or other companies that people uh, might compare uh, Coke to that 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 come to mind. Are there are there any any other differences that really stand out to you that we haven't talked about? What I like at our management approach is based on on understanding the principles of scientific and social progress, and and we've uh, codified and and systematized those. In in the in the market based management in five dimension, and then which I I didn't describe in good profit, because I I hadn't clearly thought through how we applied that that enabled us to do all the things we did. That is, to in in 1961 when uh, when I joined the company we had two businesses. The largest one was a crude oil gathering system in southern Oklahoma. And the other was a smaller company that that I, uh, my father let me run initially. Uh, uh, that made uh, in internals for distillation columns. That was it was struggling at the time, and and since then we've increased uh, the value of the company seven thousand fold and entered all these different businesses. We now have. Uh, 12 business groups such as Georgia Pacific, uh, DuPont's old nylon business, and and so forth. And, and uh, well, I, I won't go through uh, them all, but, but the, okay, the way we've done that is, is by creating what I, I now call virtuous cycles of mutual benefit. And that may be high flutin expression, but it's it accurately describes what we did. The, so the the starting point is to understand what capabilities you have that others will value that you can use to create value for others, and 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 then to find the the opportunities for those capabilities that will create the most value for others and particularly others who will reward you for that value so so our idea that the ideal for business is to maximize the value you create for others and your profit would come 
solely as compensation for that value you're creating for others and then to continually improve and uh, and add to those capabilities which and then look for based on that what what other opportunities are there uh, for which you can create superior value so so there are two components then one is to become preferred partner for uh, all your key constituencies that starts with customers but it includes uh, employees suppliers communities and society as a whole and then the second piece is to continually transform yourself like our philosophy is uh, if we in a business or you as an individual uh, working in an area if you're the best in the world it's not good enough and particularly today with the rapid improvements in technologies within a year or two you're going to be obsolete if you just rest on your laurels so you've got to be constantly thinking on how do i improve how do i do things differently uh, what are the new opportunities i mean if we had just stayed with the crude oil gathering and and making those tower internals i mean we'd be out of business now but it's by applying that applying these principles of of, of human flourishing and uh, to create these beneficial cycles focusing on how do i create value for all my constituencies uh, particularly those who will reward us for the value we create for them is what has enabled us to do what we've done and uh, is that in essence the definition of good profit for which the book is titled i mean profit that is creating value for customer society partners uh driven by sort of voluntary a voluntary mutual beneficial relationship um it seems to map um i'd, I'd love for you if, if you can maybe to confirm or clarify that and then could you give a, could you give some examples of what what bad profit is what are examples of bad profit and why our job is to produce products and services that our customers will value more than their best alternatives and in doing so to uh, constantly reduce and become more efficient in the resources we consume in doing that which okay how does that benefit society it freeze these resources then to satisfy other needs uh, so that's what good profit is bad profit is is all the ways they profit that that is antithetical to to that approach that is trying to cheat your customers uh, misrepresenting what you're doing and rigging the system uh, getting corporate welfare uh, protectionism uh, of all, all different kinds in, including protection from foreign competition but also domestic competition uh, and a great example of this is is occupational licensure uh, in which uh, which there are uh, like a third of all i think a third of all occupations today required some kind of government approval whether that's and it depends on the state or locale but there are hundreds of these 
which are, are, are mainly keep people who start with nothing from being able to do anything because some of them require uh, a couple years of, of going to school uh, and, uh, and paying a, a substantial fee that they can't afford. So it just, it keeps poor people poor rather than enabling them to realize their potential by developing their skills that other people will value. And this is things like hair braiding, hairdressing, manicurists, yoga instructors, uh, funeral parlors, interior decorators, you name it. Not things that will blow people up or anything that you think, gosh, the government needs to approve that. So it's, uh, it's all just cronyism, protectionism, and corporate welfare. So you've, uh, you know, one thing that uh, I've, I've found uh, engaging about uh, Good Profit in a lot of your writing is that you're very, you're very specific and also very transparent uh, in, in a lot of respects. The, there are a number of other things that fall uh, in the book and, and please feel free to correct me if I'm getting this wrong, under the category of bad profit, you've got mandates, subsidies, tax incentives, import tariffs, restrictions on exports, anti-competitive regulations, bailouts. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking at a workbook. This is, this, is, uh, this is a way to engage with the material, a good profit workbook for people who want to really understand the material. And one of the questions that they pose is, do Coke companies participate in bad profit? If so, why? How how would you answer that? Well, you can't avoid it. I mean, if if we, for example, take uh, uh, steel tariffs, uh, we oppose those, even though we have forty uh, percent interest in the newest steel mill in the country in Arkansas. Mavic Forbes just wrote an article about it in the last issue, Big River Steel, and. Uh, so it makes us money, uh, but, but we oppose it. I mean, we play by the rules. We're going to play by the rules. We're going to obey other laws, and, uh, and, but we're going to oppose all the ones that, uh, that undermine the, the ideal role for business and society. And, and why? What are, are you just running a charity? No. But well, we, we take the long-term view. And so to rig the system to make a quick buck uh, and makes people's lives worse, then what are you doing? Why does society need business that's making people's lives worse? Uh, if, if, if business and, and individuals are getting wealthy, the only way society's gonna permit that long term is if they're contributing to helping people improve their lives not making it worse so this is a problem with business today we have business people have a bad wealthy people have a bad reputation because there's so much of this cronyism and protectionism going on like we oppose the the, the border adjustment tax, like a 20% tax on all imports, even though we determined it, in the most likely case, it would make us over a billion dollars a year by increasing the cost of living to Walmart and Costco buyers. And 
and we helped get that defeated because as I as I told the the leaders in Republican, I said, how does this make sense? Are you going to promote this? We're for this because it's going to make Coke Industries a lot of money and probably big exporters like Boeing and, and General Electric will probably never pay tax again. And it will increase the cost of living for the great majority of people in this country, particularly those who are least well off. And, of course, they had they had their reasons, but it didn't make sense. And, and so we and others got it defeated. But the sad thing is you could to tell what the great majority of companies, what whether they were for or against that, depending on whether they thought it would make them or cost them money short term. So that's it. All this short termism that's going on, I we think is is hurting people and undermining uh, businesses' role in society. What's uh, what types of market distortions do you wish didn't exist, or are you trying to prevent all of them? All of them. Could you give? Uh, are there are there any particular examples that stand out for you as sort of the the heavier domino of sorts, or something that has particularly negative cascading effects? Well, I, I mean, the biggest are, are all these forms of corporate welfare, which I mentioned: occupational licensure, uh, the uh, restrictions on innovation and competition, and uh, opportunities for those who start with nothing as i as i said on occupational licensure so this would go with those and then and then all the protectionist provisions these trade restrictions uh this our our crazy immigration system all of these are things we're working hard on to to change it strikes me and i'm sort of a simpleton and pretty uninformed when it comes to these things but that being a privately held company allows you a flexibility that some people in leadership positions in publicly held companies, publicly traded companies, would feel they don't have, which is a benefit uh, that that uh, that you have. For instance, if if you have, uh, because I I would imagine there are differing opinions at at points. So if you have an opportunity or a say a legislative or regulatory change that could be short-term beneficial uh profitable that is and, and that that conflicts with with you charles your direction that you would like to see things head on on a broader scale for human flourishing how do you have that conversation among uh top brass in the sense that uh Revenue, profit, these are things that are easily quantifiable, whereas something like human flourishing may be harder to quantify. How do you guys have a discussion when there's, there's disagreement? We had those, those kind of disagreements decades ago, but I can't think of any of those. Now, we may have a, a debate on, on uh, whether it, this will help or hurt long term, but it, it, it is always will Will this enable to fulfill our obligation as a business? That is, to profit by helping others improve their lives. 
I mean, what we do is we teach these principles. We have dozens of people who work full time on teaching these and consulting on on these principles, the principles of, of human flourishing and and how to apply them that will make us successful long term. Uh, and that's how we, we try to reward our people. Well, first of all, we hire first on on values, on our guiding principles. We have now eight guiding principles. And, uh, and so we hire on those, we, we reward on those, we promote on those. Uh, and if somebody isn't living by them, we encourage them to go somewhere else because it's not a fit for them here. And so, so we have harmony. That doesn't mean we don't have challenges and disagreements, but it's on how to do, how to realize this, this vision and these goals rather than whether we want to sacrifice our principles for, uh, for immediate gain. So I, I would say what guides us first are, are, are these basic principles of human progress, human flourishing. Second is building capabilities that will enable us to create value for others and then to, to continually transform ourselves to do a better and better job of that and to, and to focus on using our capabilities to, to contribute. So that's what's made us successful. So, I mean, I mean, you look at our track record, not that we've been perfect and we haven't had problems and haven't violated these principles because we're all, we're all flawed. We all make mistakes and, and get off track, which we've, we've done many times and do it continually, particularly when, as we do, have 130,000 employees. That's incredible. I mean, it blows me away uh, constantly, the power of these ideas. People say, oh, well, you're so smart. I am not. Believe me, everywhere I've ever worked or whatever, there are a lot of people who are smarter than I am. It's just I was dedicated to understanding and living by these principles. And that's what's made the difference in my life. That transformed my life. Well, well let's, I'd like to talk about your, uh, the principles in your, in your intellectual formation. And I, I set a book note to come back to this. And maybe, maybe these are the wrong trees to be barking up. But c- could you speak to, uh, I've, I have a couple of thinkers I've written down. Uh, authors and thinkers, we've already talked about a few of them. Uh, Michael Polanyi, we've talked, we've spoken about your father certainly. I have F. A. Harper, author of Why Wages Rise. Ludwig von Mises, author of Human Action, among other things, of course. And uh, W. Edwards Deming. I'm wondering what what are the main principles or lessons that you've taken away from any 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 of those people we don't have to necessarily cover all of them but if any come to mind that we haven't given any airtime to if there are any principles or learnings that you uh you think are core to what you took away from uh any of the names that i mentioned right well we we've talked about popper and polanyi and there was another besides republic of science that i got from polanyi it's personal knowledge that that in in that he's written a book by name personal knowledge which says there's a huge difference between conceptual knowledge and personal knowledge and he uses the example of a concert violinist okay the first thing a concert 
somebody wants to be a concert violinist, first, how do I hold the, the violin? Uh, how do I move my hands? How do I make notes? And, and so they focus on the parts. And after these parts become natural, like the violin then becomes an extension of your hands. You don't have to think about how to use your hands. That's what he calls personal knowledge as opposed to conceptual knowledge. And then after you do that enough, where the parts become second nature, then you can focus on the whole. The whole is making beautiful music. And so that's what, I mean, just that changed our whole approach to teaching our management philosophy. Because we were in, the, it, it's what I call, I, I think, of a flaw in our education system. It's not really education, it's schooling, teach to test. And what we found in our programs that works and helps, helps people realize their potential is to like is to consider real education to be three-dimensional rather than one-dimensional and those three dimensions are uh, discover your gifts your aptitudes and what will turn you on uh, then the second one is uh, do whatever you can to fully develop those so first you learn to be then you learn to learn and then you learn to apply it Okay, how do I apply these that will make a contribution in society that will be, that will help me better myself and, and, and in the process better others, help others better their lives. And that's three-dimensional education. And we find that in, the, in our, our programs we've started and support, that's what we're looking for because that's, that's what moves us toward a society of, of mutual benefit where, where people have the opportunity to realize their potential. Okay, that's, so that's personal knowledge is another one. Another one is division of labor by comparative advantage, which also fits Howard Gardner's uh, thesis on multiple intelligence. That is basically that people aren't smart or, or, or dumb overall, I mean, except in, the, in real extremes, but most of us are gifted in some ways and, 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 and not too swift in others, and that I'm exhibit A in that. And so, I mean, that was that division of labor by comparative advantage, that was first developed by Ricardo on nations. Nations ought to focus on what they're good at and then trade with others. And then that optimizes everything. Uh, learning, uh, best use of resources, and so on. Another concept is, is creative destruction. Schumpeter's concept. That is, you don't want to be protectionist in your own shop. That is, uh, you're doing something a certain way, like Kodak uh, in, uh, in making film rather than do it digitally. They had the technology, but they tried to protect their existing product line and so ended up growing broke. So you've got to, you want to drive creative destruction internally. That is constantly replace what you're doing with a better way, a better product, a better technology. 
another one is self-actualization, when I, which I described, and then another one from also from Maslow and other positive psychologists is what he called synergy, is a system and a, a state of mind where what's selfish and unselfish merge. I mean, and that's what he meant by becoming contribution motivated, uh, that, that focusing on helping others in a way that's also rewarding to you, then the whole dichotomy between selfish and unselfish disappears. Now, that's in an idealized case, that'll never be perfectly true. But if we could have a society and an organization where that's generally true, then you're gonna be much better off. And that's what we try to apply here. That is to have uh, what's in the long-term interests of the company in the interests of the individual employees. Uh, and as I say, I learned that from, uh, from Maslow. Uh, and, then, uh, and then free speech and open inquiry is another one. Uh, the role of property rights and decision rights, which is a key, one of the five uh, dimensions of market-based management. Then basic values such as integrity, humility, respect, and desire to contribute. Then another from, this is from von Mises, human action model. People only act if the action will satisfy three requirements. The first is is you become dissatisfied with your current state, you have a vision of a better state, and you have a path to get there. So this is very important for how companies or societies organize themselves. If, uh, if people believe uh, they're dissatisfied with the current state, they see what's wrong with it, but they have no vision of, of a better state and because you don't have free speech you don't have communication they don't they haven't seen a better alternative or you you're so bureaucratic and and protectionist you don't allow anybody to improve or like in a company the approval process is so painful and difficult that you just give up somebody we worked with in one of the major oil companies years ago was always complaining about the bureaucracy there and he couldn't do anything wrong and i finally i said well so what do you do about it and he says well after a while you just paint your ass white and run with the antelope <laughs> and so that's uh, that's what what happened so these these principles may seem obvious but if they're so obvious why are so many countries, organizations, and people ignoring them? Anyway. Why, why do you, that's actually a fantastic question. Why do you think they are ignoring them? Because they're non-obvious or because there are other, other factors at play? And, and then I want to segue into, after, after you have a chance to just comment on that, uh, to uh, stand together and... And we'll, we'll, we'll provide some background to that and then get into it. But why do you, why do you think that these, these principles are, are neglected? Is it, is it because they're non-obvious, because they're difficult for, for other reasons? I, I think it doesn't fit their priorities. And I think a good part of it is they're short-term oriented rather than long-term oriented. I, I think that's critical. 
and uh, and as I say, that's been the demise of of so many companies. That's why you see companies, the top companies in the country, fifty or a hundred years ago, are all gone, or not all, but the great majority are gone, or else uh, very uh, uh, decline markedly in their position. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's incredible how many blind spots. And maybe not incredible. It's totally sensible how many blind spots are created by ignoring uh, some of these factors. A, a friend of mine, one of the co-founders of a, a site and a service called Reddit, uh, who's been on the podcast, described a meeting with an executive at, at Yahoo at one point who dismissingly looked at their numbers and said, you're a rounding error. <laughs> and of course... <laughs> That didn't uh, didn't work out so well for for Yahoo. So the creative destruction is really important. Um, one, let, one let me let me mention one other uh, principle that's been critical in my life. I touched on it, and that is that, as I said, I I have I just have a narrow range of abilities, developing those and focusing on that, and then partnering with with people who could complement that. And, and, and what I've learned is to have a good partnership that would do that requires three things. It requires shared vision, shared values, and having complementary capabilities. And where I've had that, partners who fit those three, or we fit those three together, uh, then I've been very successful. Where I haven't, I've generally failed. And my best partnership has been with my wife, who we've been together 51 years, and, and we share vision and values, and I'm, I'm good at the few things she is, and, and she's good at about everything I'm not good at. So we make each other better. And so that's been one of, another one of my great blessings and advantage in, in my life. Yeah, I wanted to to ask you. Perhaps later we'll we'll come back to this. But what is factors that have made it work? The uh, the the relationship with your wife, because we've we've spoken about that before. And I, I do want to come back to that if we have the time to do so. But I, I also want to make sure that we have a chance to cover uh, and give due time to to stand together as a way of getting there. Because I, th- I think there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of passionate supporters, and there are a lot of passionate detractors, and at least in my own very small microcosm of this, my, my experience is that the most intense supporters and detractors tend to miss things. Uh, so I, I want you to to correct me if I get anything wrong that I'm going to say as a as means of context, but just leading up to stand together. I want to paraphrase a former congressman, Joe Scarborough. This is from that source. Basically, the the gist of it is, although your critics are usually unaware, uh, the the Koch brothers have supported more than just what are generally considered conservative causes. They oppose George W. Bush on many issues, are pro-choice, support same-sex marriage, and worked closely with the Obama White House for the Obama administration's criminal justice reform initiatives that aligned with their own. Um, I've I've two two things that I wanted to mention on criminal justice reform and foreign policy, and then feel free to, and I would love you to correct anything that I get wrong, obviously. But what's what's impressed me about a number of the things that you've done, and probably many many things that you've done, is 
that you've allied with former combatants is maybe too strong a word, but uh, uh, people with whom you've had tension or people with whom you still have many disagreements uh, over different things. Uh, The first criminal justice reform, despite what I believe was pretty adversarial relationship with activists and CNN commentator Van Jones, uh, you ended up uh, collaborating um, to work together on criminal justice reform. Similarly, on foreign policy, despite disagreements with George Soros uh, on many policy issues, uh, you, you found that you had common ground when it came to foreign policy. So you were able to uh, partner with George's Open Society Foundation. The, the question I want to ask you before we get to stand together, which we're going to in just a few minutes, is how is your approach to policy? Did, a, did I get anything wrong? I'm cheating. It's a two-part question. And then B, uh, how has your approach to policy coalitions changed over time? No, that's a that's a great question. Well, I've, I've been at this uh, social change and and uh, philanthropic approach for 55 years now. And it was basically I'd learned these principles that had transformed my life and enabled me to uh, really realize my potential and accomplish more than I ever dreamed possible. And so I, I had the desire to help as many others uh, have the same kind of benefits in their own way to, f- to fit their own situation and, and gifts. And uh, so I started, as I say, and I started in on this in, in 1963. And, uh, and for the first, uh, let's say, uh, 40 years of that, I wasn't involved in politics at all. I wanted to stay away from that and and work with helping people realize their potential and supporting mainly students and then as the as the students talk to their professors about what they were learning working with uh, with our organization that the professors would come and they'd want us to help them set up a program to do that so it just spread and then uh, to get things done, we uh, we decided we needed to uh, to build uh, or organizations that would well, first of all, that would take these ideas and develop what are the policy implications of these. And so I helped <coughs> found the Cato Institute and a number of other institutes to do that. And then we decided we needed to help mobilize people. If more and more people were interested in these ideas, how do we how do we get policy changes? Well, we need to mobilize people who are interested in them and help them have a voice. And so we started doing that and then uh, decided we needed to get uh, politicians, uh, more politicians who would be interested in ideas that would really help the country long term rather than just help them get reelected. And uh, so we started doing that. And the Republicans seem, although far from ideal, seem more sympathetic to these. So we started supporting Republicans. And uh, and then then we learned that didn't get us anywhere. So we have changed. No, we're, we're just we will go back and support anybody who will 
advance these policies that will help bring about the society of mutual benefit where people have the opportunity to realize their potential. And so if you put it in terms of, of my philosophy on partnerships, you share vision and values and have complementary capabilities. What I was doing was applying too broad a requirement for shared vision. That is, okay, we'll only support those and work with those who we share broadly a vision of what kind of society we want. And so that was really limiting the number of people we could work with. And so in the last few years, we've changed that. All we need is share vision on a specific issue. And we may disagree on everything else, but if, uh, if you can really help us advance this policy that will help people improve their lives, we will we'll work together. And so that's how Van Jones has gone from being somebody who was trying to shut us down to working with us and bragging on us and, and enabled us to work with Soros and everybody on specific issues, Other, even though we have major disagreements with him. And, that, see, and then that fits where we're finding is doing that it reduces the, the hostility and the conflicts. If rather than you meet somebody, rather than try to find something you disagree with on and fight them and attack them, search for something you can work together on that will contribute, that will help people improve their lives. And doing that, now we have allies I never would have believed we can. And now as this is change, changing our brand, and uh, help people look at us, now many, many more people are open to working with us. And uh, it seems like a lot of what you've done, uh, not just in the last years, uh, but certainly even before that, has led up to uh, this initiative, Stand Together. Could you tell us a little bit about that focus and why it's a focus, what it is? Right. We've, uh, we, we started uh, the organization that was originally Stand Together, now Stand Together Foundation, to build on the work we were doing in troubled communities. And, and our approach there is what we call bottom-up as opposed to top-down. And it starts with the, the recognition as I've been saying, that everybody has a capability to realize their potential if they have the right mindset and support. So how do we, how do we help people get the right mindset and support so they can have a better, make a better life for themselves? And it's, as I say, it's with a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach. And what I mean by that is rather than have somebody come in and say, well, on average, or we can improve the statistics on this, here's what we're going to do, and we want everybody to, to do this same thing. We find that hasn't worked, but what works is, is what we, to find what we call social entrepreneurs who are closest to the problem. And this would be largely people who've, who've had a, a problem, have gotten in trouble, have been held back, and have learned to overcome it 
and now are dedicating their lives to helping others do the same. So they have different capabilities than we do. We advertise. If you're interested in our help so you can improve your efficiency by, by better management practices and, uh, and want to scale and celebrate it so it can spread so more and more people can benefit from your proven approach, then we'd love to do that. And so we've had several thousand applications. We now have 150 of these partnerships in these troubled communities on, uh, on everything from uh, addiction to, uh, to criminal justice to homelessness from lack of economic opportunity from uh, to young people who... Uh, who have only seen uh, negative contribution, negative motivation, uh, rather than contribution motivation, and to help them change their mindset that they can succeed and contribute. And uh, you know, it, it strikes me, and I'd, I'd love for you to correct me if this this isn't accurate, but it seems like you're taking a lot of your experiences from, say, criminal justice reform, uh, where you've focused, uh, among other places on, uh, really analyzing recidivism and reducing recidivism, looking at, uh, how to change things so that employment opportunities for released convicts aren't as constrained as they are currently. We're expanding those options. And I've, I've actually spent time in some, uh, max security prisons teaching entrepreneurship with a number of, of organizations, uh, that you're, you're taking, some of those learnings and then applying it more broadly to uh, sort of enable a community of social entrepreneurs. Uh, the, so the, some of the numbers that I have in front of me are uh, in terms of the entrepreneurs and groups who are focused on, and it looks like there are five, five, four key institutions, education, business, communities, government policy. So you have a th- more than a thousand professors at more than 350 universities tens of thousands of K-12 teachers, and uh, this will lead up to a question, more than 700 of the top business and philanthropic leaders that combined employ more than, more than 2 million people, 140-plus uh, community groups tackling poverty and addiction. Uh, I'm very interested in addiction. Uh, that's, that's a longer story for another time. But uh, millions of grassroots activists in all 50 states. So this is, is clearly bottom-up, like you mentioned, I think a lot of people, when they when they hear Charles Koch think market based solutions, it, are market based solutions part of this, or looking for market based solutions, or is it broader than that? Well, it's uh, it's market based in that in that it's uh, it's uh, looking at what really works and looking at individuals rather than. I mean, market is is a little bit of a of a misnomer, but it's applying the same philosophy that that made Coke Industries successful and enables us to to help our our employees become contribution and motivated. And by the way, I and you suggested this early, and our employees who after years of learning they can succeed by constantly improving their ability to create value for others they tell me and and after they retire or leave write me 
and say they they uh, they are so appreciative that they learn this because it improved their family life, their communities, their friendships, everything to look at it that way rather than the way they were looking at it before. Uh, but so it's it draws yeah on our experience in criminal justice reform, but. But more broadly, our experience in, in, in what made Coke Industries successful, uh, what have made societies throughout history successful, which ones have people have flourished and which ones have people been immiserated, uh, and what we learned in, in developing youth entrepreneurs. And that's an organization my, my wife and I started 28 years ago here in Wichita as we saw met so many kids that obviously had ability that they did, played sports with, but were just getting terrible advice. They were came from broken homes and tough neighborhoods where people were trying to hurt each other. So, wow, this is, what a waste. So we need to start something, particularly in, this, in these inner city high schools, that would teach them what we call principal entrepreneurship, that is, this to have create this three-dimensional education where they learn they could change their mindset look in spite of you think things are hopeless from where you came from they're not all you got to do is change your mindset and then we'll provide the support to help you become successful so in youth entrepreneurs they uh, theory what are the skills and values they need to be successful and discover their own and then prepare a business plan, and the best business plans will get some venture capital to help you start your own business. And then, we'll, if you're successful, you can we'll we'll find a local entrepreneur to help mentor you, maybe provide internships for you. And if you continue to do well, you want to go to trade school or college, whatever fits you, we'll help you do that. And it is amazing that how many of these young people's lives have been transformed by this and, and are running successful businesses out of this. Everything from car dealerships to uh, the, uh, one developed a protein bar that sold on Amazon, clothing lines, uh, chartering buses, uh, fitness clubs, hair braiding, making jewelry, tutoring others. I mean, it, it is incredible. It just, it blows you away when you, and these, hear these kids describe how they've, how this has transformed their lives. So that's what motivates me, not just the theory, but seeing what it really does to change people's lives. And with, with something, uh, Charles, when you're, when you're operating at, such a high level in many respects, uh, and you have so many different places you could allocate capital and effort. Uh, what what does success look like for Stand Together Foundation? Say a year from now, three years from now, whenever you would assess it to determine whether to put more into that or more into something else, which could also be philanthropic, maybe just a, a new iteration or a new foundation. How do, you, how do you think about what the success 
metrics are, or if not metrics, what how you determine if it is working or not? Well, I mean, what what we're looking for with these social entrepreneurs is which ones can really we help scale and then celebrate so it can capture the the national imagination and change the way people think about these, like criminal justice reform. I mean, there it was, what was current in choice was, okay, somebody did something illegal, block them up and throw the key away. And and prison is for punishment uh, rather than uh, to help them rebuild and get a second chance. Now, now it's changing because we, we and others, Van Jones and others, have built these broad-based coalitions that this First Step Act passed by 87 votes in the Senate. I mean, that's incredible in this day and age to have this kind of bipartisan support. And there's impetus to to take it to the next level. But it's, it's changing life as people realize that 90-some percent of people who go to prison get out. And do you want prisons to be incubators for more hardened criminals than they were when they went in? Or do you want them to have a second chance and come out with a, a skill and values that will enable them to contribute? and become contributors rather than detriments to well-being and safety. And I mean, for example, one of the groups we support, Hudson Link, uh, puts on uh, college accredited courses in prison that, that are three-dimensional, as I mentioned, and, and of the graduates of their program has a recidivism rate percent that go back to prison in three years after they get out is two percent from graduates of their program as opposed to nearly 70 percent nationally and 40 some percent in in new york where they uh, they have mainly operated and we've helped them well they're up to five prisons now and we think it can be greatly expanded you've also done uh, you've supported some uh some really good work being done in addiction treatment with the Phoenix. And I'll link to all of this in the show notes so people can, can take a look at it. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's, it's really important work. These are important topics. And part of the reason, uh, Charles, that I wanted to have you on, uh, after, you know, months of, of, uh, of just organizing to, to make it happen is that in very, polarized times where you have, it could be any number of people. The president or someone else is the second coming on one channel. You flip to the next channel and he or she is the antichrist. That uh, it is possible to attack the issues or attack the problems and not the people. And while I'm sure that, and I would hope that, if, if we were to spend more time together, you and I would disagree on a lot of things, that there are things we could absolutely agree upon. And that provides the space to have a conversation and discuss the possibility of collaboration for things that anyone can agree upon. Uh, and so, so I, I'm, I'm 
really pleased to give some of those specific examples uh, because it's it's paralyzing when everything becomes ad hominem. And uh, so, uh, so, so that that's really more of a comment than a question, but I, I just wanted to uh, thank you for making the space for us to, to talk about that. Uh, and uh, I, I do have some more questions, but the, the question about, uh, about the standing other foundation are, are you still accepting applications by social entrepreneurs uh, or has has that window already closed? Oh no, we haven't actually uh, helped change the trajectory of the country more toward this ideal. So we're we're just getting started. We we're we're up to over 150 now of these social entrepreneurs we're partnering with, and we think we're as we're developing capability, we can add uh, as many as 70 a year. So we're just. Uh, we we like just scratching the service and and then developing the capability to help them scale and then to to more fully celebrate it to get this out in the mainstream so people see what's working and how how this approach can transform lives what what these individuals have learned from their own experiences and and are dedicated to apply and those are my heroes in society of people who have suffered uh, injustice tremendous injustice and rather than come out better or giving up to dedicate their lives so that others don't have to suffer similar injustices i mean those are that's if we can encourage more more and more people to to have that frame of mind and that kind of dedication that's the only thing i think that will get us on a better trajectory in this country people can learn more of course i'll i'll mention this at the end of the show as well but standtogether.org is a great url and <laughs> a simple url for people to remember for for those who want to learn more. I'd I'd like to uh, shift gears in a way, but it's, it's, it's connecting a handful of things and also uh, giving us an opportunity to talk about sort of ad hominem versus issue-based debates and also uh, accurate perceptions versus misperceptions. So I have, I have some questions from my audience and uh, there were a lot of questions, and I've 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 deliberately chosen uh, a few that I think uh, tackle head on, or they don't really tackle, but give sort of an, an emotional voice to uh, a, a number of things that people, uh, some people, rightly or wrongly, uh, want to ask. So the, the first one I'd like to throw out and. Uh, this is from Matthew B. Uh, and you can tackle this any way you'd like, but the, the gist of it is, uh, does he ever have pangs of guilt about the millions of Americans made poorer, sicker, or dead by unfettered capitalism? Does he actually prefer a world where the majority struggle in misery so few can hoard billions? Why are higher profit margins worth polluting the environment, and how does he square that with the animals and people sickened and killed by deregulated industrial pollution? So that's uh, very strongly worded, of course, but I, I want to sort of give airtime to uh, 
uh, a few of these questions. And there are a number of questions about uh, environmental issues and, and climate change. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd love for you to, to answer that in any way that you'd that you'd like. I mean, I, th- I think we've talked about. You don't need to answer. Do you prefer a world where the majority struggle in misery? So if you can hoard billions, I think that's pretty self-evident that uh, your answer is you do not prefer that. But uh, how, how would you like to comment or or respond to that? Uh, no, we we would agree. I mean, I'm not. I I don't like the term capitalism. That that assumes that what we're after is a system where certain people have a lot of capital and that's not what we're about what we're after is a system where uh, everybody has the opportunity to realize their potential including those who start with nothing and and business should only profit to the extent they're helping other people improve their lives and that so uh and and polluting and making people sick killing people is they shouldn't profit they should bear a cost for that and those are my worst you talk you ask about failures our biggest failures in my mind and what we work the hardest on are our safety problems when there's an accident and people die i mean that's monstrous so that's that's job job one is keeping people safe and job two is protecting the environment and uh, i i think the last five years the epa has uh, ranked us either number one or number two of u.s companies in pollution reduction initiatives uh, that is that is our second top priority uh, after keeping people safe so i mean we agree to the extent but what you find is that the, the, the countries that do the worst in those are those that are top down. If you're bottom up and you're looking at individuals and how to improve their lives, it changes your approach rather than some top down statistical approach or, or control. And so that's, bit, to, to me, the basic difference is do we want a system that empowers people or one that controls them. And you look at systems through history that have tried to, to advance humanity by controlling everybody and making them follow some theory of, uh, of the people in charge as opposed to having incentives and rules that will uh, cause people to want uh, to believe that the way to succeed is by helping others improve their lives. I mean, the results throughout history, there is no comparison between the two in, in the benefit to human flourishing. I mean, if you want to look at the biggest polluters, look at East Germany when, when that became combined with West Germany. They had all these inefficient factories that were massive polluters. And then, and then look at, uh, uh, the, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Chernobyl, on the that shows when things become politicized they become corrupted and that's that's why all those years i got had nothing to do with politics and now we're uh we have something to do with it but uh but based on on not 
partisan, but who's going to help uh, improve the policy so so we can move toward this system of mutual benefits? So, so I'm going to ask just a few more of, of these, and I'm going to alternate between the the highly politically charged and not. So I'll, I'll go to one that I think is not, but I'd be curious to hear your answer. It was upvoted quite a bit. This is from John Jay. Uh, Ask Charles why we can't return to the tax structure of last century. Higher taxes equals higher GDP. We average twice the GDP of today. Trickle down never works. Government has created or supported most businesses in this country. Computers, GPS, internet, roads, electricity, etc. What are your thoughts, Charles? I mean, I, I, my reading of history is, is somewhat different. My, <laughs> I, 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 don't, history, I don't have a dog in the fight because I'm not, I don't, I'm my, not well educated my, on this. People are liberated and empowered uh, they succeed. If you look at the, the, the history of humanity, for all the millennia up until starting in the 18th century, there was barely ever any improvement. And because these were top-down societies, where those in charge, well, they were, they were beyond authoritarian, they were totalitarian, and people weren't allowed to think differently. If you, if you violated the religious dogma, tortured until you either died or or changed your opinion or were threatened with that and so that stifled progress and then uh, starting really in and with holland when they got out from under spanish rule uh, they started liberating so religious and other dissidents started coming to Holland and they had free trade, open, I mean, they had plenty of problems. They still had slavery, which was uh, uh, endemic everywhere. But they had much more than others. So they became the most prosperous country in the world. And then it, it, uh, it followed in, uh, in England and then spread to the United States, these ideas, and was to me, best embodied in the Declaration of Independence, that is a system of equal rights uh, and, and everybody having the right to the pursuit of happiness, which to me is a different way of saying uh, the opportunity to realize their potential and to, to learn, contribute, and succeed. And to the extent that was followed in this country made us the U.S. the most successful country in the history of the world. Unfortunately, it was not applied across the board. For example, uh, African Americans and Native Americans had no rights. Uh, obviously, with slavery for African Americans and practicing genocide against Native Americans, women only had partial rights, not just. And I'm not talking about just the right uh, to vote, but they weren't allowed to go to college in the early days. They weren't, uh, uh, when they got married, whatever property they had, their husbands controlled. So the, the relationship between husband and wife was almost like a master-servant relationship. And it took 80 years to remove the great majority of that. Then various immigrants, such particularly the Chinese and the, and, the, and the Irish had only partial rights and certain religious groups didn't 
So all these, all those were violations of the principles in the Declaration of Independence. And to me, what we're working on, what Stand Together is working on, is to eliminate the, the, the aspects of all those injustices that continue to haunt us, haunt the country today. Thank you. Uh, a, a lot of, I'm going to jump back to the, the more charged, uh, a lot of these questions are about uh, climate change. And I, I don't, I don't know the answer to this. So I'm just going to ask since uh, this is sort of thematically has come up a couple times from Iman. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to get the last name. This one is from Iman. Uh, do you really fund propaganda to confuse people about global warming? Well, I, I certainly hope not. Believe me, I am totally dedicated to the scientific method and, and good science. And, um, uh, what we're doing is is trying to get various groups, not people on the extremes, who say there there is no uh, man-made contribution to to warming, or others who say uh, within a few years the the world's going to end. So leaving those people out, people who are somewhat open-minded and willing to listen to the other side to get them together. And we've had several of those sessions so we can find something. I mean, there, there's enough concern about a man-made contribution to, to warming that various policies are, have been developed and are being developed. And so what we want them to do is, is to find policies that will actually work, actually do something about reducing CO2 emissions, man-made CO2 emissions, and at the same time not make people's lives worse. So many of these policies haven't done anything, reduce CO2, but they make people's lives worse, particularly the poorest. And, uh, and the biggest contribution or the biggest reduction has been in the U.S. in recent years because of, of fracking of natural gas substituting for coal. And so the U.S. is now, figures I have seen, is now responsible for 15% of CO2, uh, man-made CO2 generation. And a, the countries in Asia, particularly China and India, share is growing and the problem with many of our policies is they they aren't doing much for it and they make us less competitive versus china and china has uh, double the co2 emissions per unit of gdp that the u.s does and so as we push more over there push more production over there we're just increasing and uncertain of the uh, uh, of the production there, for example, in fertilizers and chemicals that are based on coal gas rather than natural gas, it's four to five times the emission per unit of production. So these are all dilemmas that we try to do something here, but it, many of them make it worse. So how do we, what we think we need are innovations that are going to, cause China to adopt them and have them reduce emissions rather than us try to do it in ways that causes them to increase emissions. So that's, that's what we're working on. And because it's not 
it's just not, once again, it's just not a simple top-down matter. You've got to provide incentives for people to, to do it, and people have to believe it will make their lives better rather than worse and, and accomplish nothing, which is what a lot of the policies have done. Yeah, it's a great point about China and offshoring that I certainly hadn't thought through uh, as uh, as granularly as that. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're pushing off production into a jurisdiction or just a it could be jurisdiction, it could be regulatory, it could be cultural. I have no idea where the the, the emissions or pollution per unit of production is four or five times higher. You, you haven't solved the problem by changing the location. Uh, and, you, and you see that in the world, all these policies and all this in, these initiatives and CO2 emissions are still going up around the world. So we need a different approach. I mean, to keep doing the same thing over and over is, is a form of insanity. So... That's what we're trying to do is get people focused on something that will make a difference and not make people's lives worse. So, so Charles, this is a question for me, just building on that uh, or related to it. What, what do you think are the most legitimate existential threats to mankind? If you go to Silicon Valley, artificial intelligence is a very popular vote. Uh, you certainly have sort of climate uh, change or global warming, depending on if you're using uh, whose wording you're using, uh, which is the vote for a lot of folks. In your mind, what are, uh, if any, the 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 more legitimate existential threats to humankind? I think the biggest threats, as they were for millennia, up until the 18th century, are top down. The tyranny of experts, the fatal conceit that a few smart people can go tell everybody how to live their lives. And what we're finding, we're working with these social entrepreneurs, the ones who have good solutions, micro solutions, not macro solutions, because they've lived through problems and they, they've worked their way out of it and they know what works and are proving it every day that that's what we need as society as as hayek found in history that enables people to pursue their own interests in a way that is mutually beneficial and leads to peace and harmony and these top-down solutions all they do is create partisanship and and uh, and conflict and that's what we see today in this country because it's politics is win-lose game working together to your mutual benefit is win-win as opposed to win-lose so we need to maximize the amount that we allow people to do to advance their interests in a way that benefits others are there any particular problems that worry you or things on the horizon that worry you that you think everyone should be paying more attention to? Any specifics that come to mind? Yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, policies on trade and, 
and immigration. It's what uh, is attributed to Bastiat. If goods don't cross uh, borders, soldiers will. And to have, and then our foreign policy of of forever wars. That's why we with with uh, with Soros's foundation, we we created this the Quincy Institute, named after John Quincy Adams, who said, following the founders, we go we go not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. We're the friends of all nations and allies of none. And so we're in dozens of wars. We have a, a, over 800 bases around the world. We're involved in everything, trying to control the world. And it doesn't work. This is totally, this is the most top-down of all. Yeah, it didn't, didn't work very well for the Roman Empire. Uh, <laughs> not to say they're equivalent, but <laughs> quick review of history. It seems to indicate that that, that doesn't tend to pan out so, super well. And, and, and then you add nuclear uh, weapons to the mix, and the more we we bully, or like like we did in Libya, uh, Gaddafi promised and got rid of his nuclear ambitions, and so we destroyed him, and so that creates a little bit of perverse incentive for Iran and North Korea and stuff to to believe our uh, promises that we'll leave them alone if if they'll drop their nuclear weapons. So, I mean, it's, this stuff is so backwards. What would, uh, this, this, is, this is a question from, I think it's Jokum or Hokum, I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, and I, I, I know we, uh, we probably only have a handful of minutes left if you're open to just going for another maybe five to 10 minutes. Sure. Uh, and his question is, what would you be willing to risk your whole fortune for? And, I, and I'll just add my own parameter to that, which is it's not necessarily betting the farm with the company, but your personal fortune. Is there anything that you would risk uh, a lot of or your entire fortune for? Well, I'm investing all the liquidity I have in, in Stand Together. So, I mean, I, the, the economists have a concept called demonstrated preference that pay attention not to what people say, but what they do. So that's what I'm doing. And then I dedicate a lot of my time to that as well, my time and, right. and treasure. And, uh, and so that's, that's what I'm, I'm risking everything to. And that's, that's the progress we're making there is one of the reasons I get up in the morning charged up every day. Yeah, well, it's important to have a reason to get up, <laughs> which uh, I think you're, you're not to, not to harken all the way back to this, but uh, your chapter on incentives in uh, Good Profit actually touches on quite a lot. Uh, what would you put on a billboard, metaphorically speaking, if you could get a a quote or a message, question a word, anything non-commercial out to billions of people. Is is there anything that you might put on that billboard? Yeah, I put, which is our, our slogan at uh, Stand Together, greater your good. And that's because that's a little bizarre. So that, what, what, what are they talking about? So you would hope that then they'd follow up. What, what do they mean by that? And yeah, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean just exactly what I'm thinking. Well, I mean, what we've been talking about, that is discover your, your gifts, develop them, and apply them in a way that helps others that's also beneficial to you so you'll be motivated to continue to do it. 
Well, Charles, I, I, I don't want to um, take up too much of your time, but I do have uh, maybe a few more questions. And uh, I, I want to, we started close to the beginning, age six, I want to say, something along those lines, digging dandelions. Uh, let's go back even further. Who were, who were you named after? Where do you get your first name? Well, my, my first and middle name was, is Charles Dagenall, and I was named after an entrepreneur my father worked for named Charles Dagenall. And he, he, uh, he, my father at age, I don't know, 25 or so, or maybe it was 27, designed a, a refinery for him on the Isle of Grain in the UK and worked for him for a couple of years and they became lifelong friends and he greatly admired Charles Degenau's entrepreneurship, his integrity and his treatment of others. So that's who I was named after. Did, uh, did, did Charles give your father uh, sort of opportunities that were important early on or was there uh did that factor into the the friendship that they developed or was it uh in a broader sense what you just mentioned yeah he his son uh, carl dagenau was a classmate of my my father my father started at rice and studying chemistry because the, the, there wasn't a field called chemical engineering and then after during his sophomore year there, uh, MIT started the first chemical engineering department. And so uh, my, the junior year, my father transferred to MIT and, and got his degree there in chemical engineering practice. And then he went to work for, it was Texaco then, and then the gasoline products company, which was a process design company. And in, in all this, he, he developed his own ideas on, on uh, refining and, uh, and upgrading uh, heavy oil. And so uh, Charles Dagenau wanted to build this plant in, in the Isle of Grain. And, and believe me, uh, plants back then in the 20s were nothing like today. A whole refinery would cost maybe a couple of million, and it was primitive by today's standard but Carl recommended his father that he hire my my father from from a, an, as an employee at gasoline products company and so my father uh, quit gasoline but went to work for Charles Dagenall so he gave him that opportunity and uh, and then my father wanted to go in business for himself and he he came back. He came to Wichita, where another classmate had an engineering company, and he joined there as a partner. He invested three hundred dollars and became a partner. And another funny story is people wonder, well, how'd you get the name Coke? How do you pronounce that? Well, my 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 grandfather, my father's father, immigrated from uh, the Netherlands in eighteen eighty eight, and. Uh, and he didn't speak any English, so he came over. He was a printer's apprentice, and he went to work for various Dutch newspapers. And in that, learned to speak English. And then he heard about this print shop and, and weekly newspaper in Quanta, Texas, that he and a partner could buy for, I don't know, two or $300. 
and so they bought that and uh and it was very poor place they they mainly got paid with uh uh the farmer would have chickens or eggs and deliver eggs or chicken or or wheat or whatever is largely a barter system because nobody had any money and so that's where my father grew up and he had this technical ability so he said he'd he wanted to go somewhere where there was more opportunity so that's he went to rice and then mit and then ended up uh, with his own business and is is coke the dutch pronunciation oh yeah thanks i i got off the subject yeah so so my grandfather pronounced it oh. <laughs> hard for English speakers. <laughs> well, particularly West Texans, that doesn't exactly fit their pronunciation. <laughs> so, so they pronounced it "caw" like a crow, "caw." Fred "caw." That's the way it's pronounced there. My father hated that pronunciation, and one time he was traveling on business, and he was paged as Fred Coke, and he said. Uh, I like that. So that's how we got our name. So you can see it has this elegant history. <laughs> that's amazing. From royalty. Uh, from, from the bartering with chickens and having people address him as Caw, <laughs> hating yeah, it so it. much that he took the last name from an announcement. That's incredible. Uh, well, Charles, I suppose, much like uh, the Charles that we mentioned uh, who gave your, your father those opportunities early on. Uh, I'm really excited to see what Stand Together does and what opportunities they provide to people who could benefit from them. And uh, hopefully, like you said, to scale solutions that can you know, capture the imagination of the nation. Uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a worthwhile project. And uh, people can learn more about that at standtogether.org. Uh, they can learn about uh, every, all of the, the company side of things at cokeind.com. T- on Twitter, people can find Stand Together at, uh, at stand underscore together. And uh, Coke Industries is simply at Coke Industries. Is there anything else that uh, you would like to say or discuss yeah, I think there are a number of, of videos that I've done and others have done on, on YouTube. I think you can just go on YouTube and sure. look up Charles Koch and you see mine. And so you can. Results. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I mean, particularly what I've said, and then you can you can judge me by that. I've done uh, a number of uh, of op eds and. Uh, and I've done uh, one with uh, uh, with Bloomberg on free speech and open inquiry at college campus. Michael Bloomberg. I've done one with Tim Cook on Apple, uh, on the Dreamers, on making them permanent, uh, and and we've we've brought Dreamers back to Washington and and to the Nasdaq to 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 show. How many of them are productive? A bunch of them work for us as in other companies. Microsoft has joined us in that. And then I've done one uh, with uh, Michael Lomax, the, the president of United Negro College Fund, on uh, the work uh, we've done uh, with, with that organization to help uh, students at these uh, historically b- black uh, colleges. 
uh, to learn principled entrepreneurship. So that's that's been another amazing uh, story of of helping these students transform their lives, just like youth entrepreneurs has been. Great. I will uh, I will get a number of videos from your team, and then we will also link to the op eds and. Uh, for everybody listening, you'll be able to find links to everything that we spoke about, uh, certainly in the show notes at tim.blog forward slash podcast as always. And you can just search by the episode or search Coke, K-O-C-H, and it'll pop right up. Uh, Charles, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a very, very busy man. Uh, you seem to be as, as busy as ever at 83, which I admire. And uh, I hope that this episode will certainly bring attention to Stand Together. Uh, but even more than that, uh, some of the, the principles behind it and the underlying ability, if we choose to exercise it, to attack the problems and not the people even with the people you most disagree with on, say, 90, 95%, 99% of all issues, you can still find common ground. Uh, so, so my hope is that this episode and the stories that you've shared, uh, and certainly the current initiatives also, will show people that that is a path you can choose. So thank you for making the time, Charles. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Tim, and and asking some of the tough questions that's that's what we need that's the scientific method the challenge so i enjoy it and appreciate it my pleasure thanks charles yeah hey guys this is tim again just a few more things before you take off number one this is five bullet friday do you want to get a short email from me and would you enjoy getting a short email from me every friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend. And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered, it could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by ShipStation. If you've ever sold anything online or if you sell anything online, then you know what a pain in the ass the shipping process is. It's time consuming, it's expensive, you're always copying and pasting orders from different sites, trying to figure out the best carrier, so on and so forth. It's such a hassle. And in a previous life, I shipped tens of thousands of units overseas, domestically, overnight, ground, every possible carrier. It drove me bonkers. ShipStation was created to make your life easier. I wish I had had it when I was in the biz, so to speak. It has the most five-star reviews of any shipping software. 4.9 out of 5 for Magento users, 4.8 out of 5 for Shopify users, 4.5 out of 5 for big commerce users. It goes on and on. 
Whether you're selling on eBay, Amazon, Shopify, or more than 100 other popular selling channels, ShipStation lets you access all of your orders from one simple dashboard. ShipStation works with all of the major shipping carriers locally and globally, including FedEx, UPS, and the major local couriers like USPS. ShipStation will recommend the best carrier for your needs so that you know that you're always getting the best deal. They even offer discounts on shipping costs that are available to say you as a one person shop that would normally be thought of as reserved for large Fortune 500 companies. So there are a lot of benefits. No other shipping platform makes shipping faster, easier, and more affordable. And right now, Tim Ferriss Show listeners get to try ShipStation free for 60 days when you use promo code TIM. It's risk-free. You can start your free trial without even entering your credit card info. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in TIM, T-I-M. That's ShipStation.com. Enter promo code TIM. Check it out, ShipStation.com. Promo code TIM. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. What is VPN? Virtual Private Network. It's an app that you run on your computer or your mobile device. It secures your internet connection, hides your public IP address, and lets you bypass regional restrictions on content. And I actually asked my followers on Twitter, 1.5 or 1.6 million of you, for VPN recommendations, your favorites. Many wrote back that ExpressVPN was their favorite, including a number of people who've been on this podcast. So I gave it a shot. I've been using it for a few weeks now, and it is ridiculously fast, uh, to the extent that I thought I didn't have it on, <laughs> to give you an idea. ExpressVPN is consistently rated the fastest VPN service on the market. It's incredibly easy to use, and it's one, two, three. Just download the app, tap one button, and you're connected to a secure VPN server. And I recommend checking out the website just to see the sign-up flow. They make it really smooth, very easy to sign up. And if you're an entrepreneur or do any web-based front-end development or design, rather, it's worth checking out for that alone. So ExpressVPN, what are we talking about here? ExpressVPN is great for when you need to get work done while you're on some sketchy Wi-Fi network, for instance. And I've had a number of hacker friends of mine show me how easy it is to snoop on public Wi-Fi just by downloading simple apps. You do not need a computer science background to do that, which scares the hell out of me. So if you don't want to be a victim of that, you can use ExpressVPN. Or if you're traveling and need to access something that's only available in another country. So let's say you're in a hotel in a foreign land, you light some candles, and you want to throw on some Pandora for ambiance, well, lickety-split, ExpressVPN has you covered. ExpressVPN is useful not only for entrepreneurs and remote workers and travelers, like yours truly, but really for anyone who wants protection from being snooped on or having their personal data stolen. So I use it constantly when I'm in airports, coffee shops, and so on. Any public Wi-Fi, really. You just use the internet like you normally would, but with ExpressVPN encrypting all of your network traffic to safeguard your data. So check it out. Visit my special link at expressvpn.com slash Tim, and you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Tim to claim your special deal. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tim. 